works. All right, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Paul, one of the servants here at New Life Press, and I have the privilege of bringing to you God's word this morning. Uh, we are in the second week of our short four-part series in the book of Jonah as we celebrate as a church missions month. And just a quick recap, we saw last week, if you're able to join with us, in Jonah chapter 1, how God called Jonah, an Israelite prophet, to go and preach the good news to the people of Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? He went literally the opposite way. Right? Nineveh was the most eastern part of where Jonah was at, but when, jo- when God called Jonah to go preach to Nineveh, he took a one-way ticket to the most western part of the known world called Tarshish. But it's like if God told you and me to go on missions right now to the state of Maine, you and I book a one-way flight southwest ticket to Hawaii. And as Pastor Rich of Risen and Hayward has shared last week, God so pointed a storm to shake up Jonah in his sin, and then Jonah and the sailors were caught up in a storm. They thought they were going to die, and they cast a lot, and it lands on Jonah, and now they're throwing Jonah overboard. And then God appoints again a great fish to swallow him, and it brings us to our passage today. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. Let us all stand as an act of worship as we read God's holy and perfect word this morning. Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1, uh, verse 17, through all the way through the end of the chapter 2. This is the reading of God's word, friends. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray once more together. Father, we thank you for your perfect and good word. And Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts now. Would you open our ears to hear the good news, Lord? Would you convict us of our sins, of our waywardness, but also comfort us? with your grace, and especially with your mercy. We thank you and pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for many of us who grew up in the church and have been a Christian for quite some time, or even non-Christians perhaps, we're pretty familiar with the story of Jonah and the fish. There is this epic, famous VeggieTales movie called Jonah, right, and the whale. We teach our children Sunday school right, right about now. They're probably talking about Jonah and the whale. And Jonah is one of the most popular books to preach on for missions, and that's what we're doing here for the month of April. But Jonah is also a book about race, about nationalism, as we see Jonah hating on the people of Nineveh. But Jonah is also a book about obedience and disobedience. But what our passage reminds us today, friends, is that this book is not just a guide to becoming a better missions-minded Christian. It's not 
only about reconciling between two races. And it's definitely not about fearing God that he's going to punish you like he did with Jonah the moment you disobey. And one of the most interesting things about the book of Jonah is that Jonah is unlike any other prophetical books of the Old Testament. In books like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Obadiah, God speaks his words through the prophet's mouth. Or he communicates to his people through the prophet's word ministry. Thus says the Lord. But in the book of Jonah, God communicates his heart about who he is and what he is all about, not through Jonah's words, but through the life of the prophet. You see, Jonah's word ministry, if you call it that, in chapter 3, verse 4, as we're going to see next week, was only five words long. And that's because God wants to teach his people, including you and me this morning, not through Jonah's words, but through the life of Jonah. Or he doesn't want us to just hear the word. He wants us to see it play out in action. And that's what we see in the book of Jonah, and especially in our passage today. It's a story about God's mercy for the evil Ninevites. Jonah is a story of God's mercy for a disobedient, pharisaical, self-centric prophet like Jonah. But Jonah is also a story of God's mercy for people like you and me. And I believe that once you and I have a better understanding of how God's mercy actually works in our lives, once you and I are captivated and in awe of God's mercy, of how rich in mercy our God is, the only natural and proper response to that is worship. Not just worship right here in Fullerton, but worship to the ends of the earth, participating in the Great Commission to be a sent and sending church proclaiming this mercy that we're about to see in our passage today. So three points about God's mercy this morning that I want us to take a journey on together is this, that we see God's mercy first in Jonah's despair, and then secondly, we see God's mercy in yours and my despair, and lastly, we see God's mercy most perfectly in Christ's despair. Let's do that. First, Jonah's despair, then together. Um, First point, you would think that after going through a crazy storm, after having the lot cast on him, after being thrown into the sea, after being swallowed up miraculously by a fish or great whale, you would realize and you would think, now he'll say, I'm in the wrong. Finally, he'll apologize. Now he'll repent. But look at verse 17 of chapter 1 with me. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Right, Jonah was supposed to be this prophet of God, didn't pray when God called him to be a missionary. He didn't pray when he was about to get everyone killed on the boat. He didn't pray even after he was swallowed up by a fish for three days and three nights. That's how stubborn, that's how rebellious, that's how foolish Jonah was. And as one commentator might say, Jonah did not pray because he didn't want to talk to God, let alone hear from God. Now, if you're in God's shoes, wouldn't you want to just move on? by Jonah, and get Hosea, get another Israelite prophet who actually prays, who actually loves the Lord, who actually loves missions. And that's how you and I in our sins like to think. We're not really keen on giving our second chances. But what our God of mercy is showing us through the life of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2 is that God is nothing like Jonah, and God is nothing like you and me. Because God waits You see, God waits until Jonah realizes that he has hit rock bottom, even if it means waiting three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. 
or he doesn't go look for a Hosea or another Israelite prophet, or he doesn't twist Jonah's arms and makes him go to Nineveh. Instead, he waits for Jonah in the belly of the fish. He actually guides Jonah into his descent, to his rock bottom, to his despair. So let's take a look at Jonah's despair in the belly of the fish, starting in verse 2 together. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. You know, we use the word distress to talk about our anxiety and sorrow. Like, I'm in distress before I give my presentation to my boss or in my class. I'm in distress when someone rear-ends my car. But the word distress in Hebrew is not just anxiety and stress from our everyday lives and struggles, but it's the, actually the opposite of salvation. Distress in Hebrew is the opposite of salvation. So in other words, it's near death. Right? Jonah feels this close to death. He is in extreme anxiety, extreme sorrow, and feels extremely close to the death in his distress. And he continues, and he says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. He doesn't say, Out of the belly of the fish or the whale or the shark I cried. He says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. You see, Sheol in the ancient East, uh, Near Eastern culture and throughout the Old Testament refers to the underworld, right? The furthest place away from God. In other words, land of Hades or hell. And Jonah knows that he's in the belly of the fish, but he also realizes in a much more deeper way that he's actually in the belly of Sheol, the furthest, the lowest of the underworld away from his God. And this wasn't coincidental that Jonah feels like he's at his rock bottom at the lowest point, because ever since the beginning of the book, Jonah has been going down and down and down. See, God calls Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, arise and go to Nineveh. Well, next verse, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, get up and go to Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't get up, he actually goes down. In verse 3, Jonah, uh, it says, Jonah went down to Joppa, and then he gets his ticket and goes even more down into the ship. And then in verse 5, he goes even more down to the middle of the ship, in the middle of the storm, to find safety. And then Jonah is thrown overboard down into the sea. And then the great fish swallows him, and it goes even more down into now rock bottom at the belly of Sheol. And then chapter 2, verse 3, he talks about the flood just surrounding him and the waves rushing over him. And Jonah is speaking metaphorically here about the troubles and tribulations both outside of him but also within his heart. And you and I feel like that too sometimes, don't we? We feel like we just can't catch a break. That there are waves after waves of problems. There's something that keeps going wrong in your life, and we feel like verse 5, the water's closing over your life. We feel like verse 7, my life feels like fainting away. But also Jonah has literally a turban of seaweed on his head that is choking him, and he feels trapped. He feels imprisoned. In verse 6, he, went, he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And again, friends, that's how you and I feel sometimes, don't we? We feel so trapped. We feel so pinned down. We feel like out of options, out of control, when everything in life seems to go wrong. But the worst of Jonah's experience that leads to his ultimate despair is verse 4. Jonah says in verse 4, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. You see, despite all his efforts to run away from God, from his call to be a missionary, to go to Nineveh, Jonah finally realizes that he is separated from God. But that phrase, driven away, is the same exact phrase in the book of Genesis when God 
drives away Adam and Eve after their sin. So Jonah realizes his sin has made God drive him away to the belly of Sheol, to his distress, and to his despair. And friends, if you've lived long enough, I think most of us in this room can relate in one sense or another to Jonah's despair and distress, can't we? Something tragic happens in your life. Something unthinkable that brings extreme anxiety and sorrow. Waves after waves of trouble keeps crashing over you, flips you upside down, and we're so prone to think that maybe God did drive me away. Maybe God left me. Maybe God had enough of my sins, enough of my foolishness and idolatry. And maybe you think God's mercy finally ran out on you. And you think to yourself, what do I do? Leads us to our second point, your despair. If you've known me uh, for quite some time, I don't like sharing this, but you might figure it out. I have a terrible fear of swimming in the ocean. I can go to knee-high and maybe to my belly, but anything more than that, I'm so scared. Um, One, because I have a huge fear of sharks after watching Jaws when I was little. So I went to Hawaii this summer. I barely swam. I like looking at the beaches. Uh, But back in my youth group days, when I was in middle school, actually, we went to a youth retreat in Santa Cruz Mountains, and the beach was right there. Uh, we were swimming. It wasn't even that deep. In middle school, maybe I was like this short. Um, and the waves were trying to jump and ride, and it wasn't that big, but it kept pulling us deeper and deeper into the tides. And before you know it, there's a huge wave that I mistimed the wave, and it just pummeled me to the ground, flipped me so many times, upside down. I drank so much water, seawater, and I tried to come up for air, and the moment I tried to grab some air, I drink water because it pulled me back down. Traumatic experience. Maybe... That's what you feel like today. Or maybe you've learned to ride the ankle high waves or the knee high waves of your life, but just on the horizon you see the tsunami of a wave coming your way. Or maybe you're that middle school Paul getting tossed and turned and pummeled underwater and just getting flipped upside down right this moment of your life. Maybe you've lost or you're about to lose a loved one. You've been diagnosed with cancer or some other disease and it feels like your life is just crumbling down. Your never-ending marital issues with your spouse, feeling like there's no other option but separation. Your frustrating fights with your growing children, feeling like you've failed as a parent. The overload of stress and responsibilities at school or at work that keeps drowning you and leaves you feeling so hopeless and meaningless in life. And the moment you come up for air, it drags you back down, flips you upside down, starts drowning you in the storms of your life. And friends, some of you may be going through a lifelong journey of depression where underwater, where rock bottom, where the belly of Sheol feels like normal to you. Or some of you have been in the middle of conflicts and broken relationships at work, at school, in your families, or right here even in the church. You feel so alone, so unseen, so misunderstood. Some of you may be dealing with your habitual sin finally blowing up in your face, and you now have to face the consequences of your actions. And you look at your life, and you can't feel, or you can't help, but feel like God has actually driven you away from his sight. All the failed relationships, all the failed careers, all the failed attempts at your happiness and joy, you feel like it's because God's mercy finally ran out on you. And you start to wonder, just like Jonah in verse 4, where is God? Did he give up on me? Has he had enough of my sins, my foolishness? 
But sisters and brothers of new life, this is where God is teaching us through not the words of Jonah, but through the life of Jonah that our God is a God of mercy. And he operates in ways that no other person in this world can even dare to try. Because it was the Lord in his mercy who hurled a great storm in the sea where Jonah was. It was the Lord in his mercy who appointed the fish to go swallow him. It was the Lord in his mercy, as you see in verse 3, who cast Jonah into the deep. It was the Lord's waves. It was the Lord's billows that passed over Jonah in verse 3. It was the Lord who in his mercy brought Jonah to his rock bottom, to his despair. And it is that same Lord of mercy who appoints a great fish in a storm and brings you and me to our rock bottom and to our despair. Because as Tim Keller said in his book on Jonah, it is only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and resources are broken and exhausted, that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. The way up is first of all down. The usual place to learn the greatest secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. And right now, friends, you might be on your way in this descent like Jonah. You might be having a crisis in your faith, wondering if God actually loves you, if God actually cares for you and sees all that you're going through. You might be flailing about in your panic. You might be frozen in your grief and your sorrow. And you're asking, Paul, how is my despair God's mercy? Or how dare you call my suffering and my despair and my rock bottom as God's mercy? You have no idea. And you're right, I have no clue what kind of waves you're riding and you're suffering and you're drowning from. I have no idea what you have been dealing with physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually for months, for years. But as Richard Sibbs, a 17th century Anglican preacher once said, whatever God takes away, he never takes away himself. In other words, friends, what I do know in my head, but also fight with all my heart to believe also in my heart is that God may take everything in your life away, your relationships, your career, your dreams, your aspirations, your wealth, your security, but he will never take away himself. Well, don't take my word for it. Don't take Sib's word for it. God says in himself in Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6, he says, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. For we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Romans eight thirty five through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, God is not destroying you in your trials. God is not destroying you in your despair. He is saving you. He is restoring you. He is delivering you from your sins, from your rebellion, from your foolishness, but also from our love of ourselves and of the world. Because as Richard Phillips in his commentary has written, it is only when you and I understand the depths to which we have sunk that we are ready to see God's way of deliverance. You see, God, in this season of your despair, or maybe the next season of your despair, 
might be taking you deeper down to show you, as Tim Keller calls it, his severe mercy. But to show you his fatherly discipline, to show you how much he actually cares and loves you because he cannot bear to see you go onto another path where you'll even be one inch away from his love and his grace and his mercy. So church, your despair does not mean that God has driven you away. It doesn't mean that God is punishing you. It doesn't mean that his mercy has run out on you. It's quite the opposite. Your despair, your storm, your Sheol, it's all because his love is unending. It's because his love, his mercy is so rich. It's because he's the God of grace and God of second and third and million chances that he's leading you now perhaps to your despair and to the depths of the sea. But he doesn't just lead you there. He doesn't just watch you go down. He's there with you in your despair, which leads us to our last and final point, Christ's despair. At this point, again, you might be asking to yourself, Paul, what am I supposed to do with this head knowledge theology that God brings me to my despair? That doesn't help me. It doesn't give me any hope. It doesn't comfort me. And you're right, just knowing in your head that God is sovereign, that God is merciful, that God is taking you to your despair may not be the healing and the comfort you might need in your life right now. Because the only way you and I can hold on on this side of glory in the middle of your storms, the middle of your despair, is by fixing your gaze of your heart upon his distress, his despair, which was his death on the cross. In other words, how do we know that your despair is a sign of God's severe mercy? You look at the same mercy that was shown on the cross. You know, it's interesting that Jonah in his prayer mentions temple twice in verse 4 of chapter 2, Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. Verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. But the temple to Jonah and the Israelites of the Old Testament was where God received sacrifices. The temple was where the blood of the sacrificial lamb was shed and sprinkled for the forgiveness of sins. It was where God's mercy was displayed. And Jonah, in the utter bottom of his despair, he remembered the temple as the picture of God's mercy. So he places hope upon the temple. And Phillips again says in his commentary about this, he says, For what Jonah looked to of the temple in faith received its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Each of us, no matter how fallen, may look to the altar on which the lamb was slain for reconciliation with God. Each of us, no matter how dark the circumstances of life, may look to the cross of Christ as the proof of God's unrelenting love. In other words, sisters and brothers, how do you know that God is not only in control over your despair, but is right there with you in your darkest and deepest despair? When you're tumbling through life, when you're barely holding on, when you're literally crawling through the church doors week in and week out asking for help, how do you know? It's the cross and his death. I asked Pastor Andrew how to pronounce this name because I never said his name out loud, but J.R.R. Tolkien is how you say the name, the author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy as he was a linguistic genius. And I get this insight from my good pastor friend who spoke for our college retreat uh, last weekend, and he made up this word, not my pastor friend, but J.R. Tolkien made up this word, you catastrophe. You meaning good catastrophe. And you might be wondering, how can any catastrophe, any despair, any distress, any pain, 
and sorrow be good. And Tolkien, who was a believer himself, must have known something about God's severe mercy. Because the worst catastrophe to ever occur on this side of glory in the history of mankind was when the perfect, sinless God-man, Jesus Christ, suffered the worst possible death penalty on the cross. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He loved and embraced the unlovable sinners like you and me, and yet we rejected him, we spit on him, we've scoffed at him, and we've put him to the cross. You see, this worst catastrophe is also the best you catastrophe. Because Jesus' despair on the cross, it gives you hope. It gives you life eternal to endure all despair, all the depths and the darkest moments of your life. And again, as Paul Tripp says in his blog, the very worst thing that could happen was at the very same time, the very best thing that could happen. And only God is able to do such a thing. You see, God takes the disasters in your life and makes them tools of redemption. He takes your failures and employs it as a tool of grace. The hardest things in your life become the sweetest tools of grace in his wise and loving hands. The only hope that can get you through your despair, friends, is this good news. That Jesus, the greater and better Jonah, has gone through the depths of hell for you and for me. Jesus says it himself in Matthew 12, 40 and 41. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, God told Jonah to go bring the gospel, to bring salvation to the sinners of Nineveh, and he went the opposite way because he despised God's mercy. Then God called the greater Jonah, Jesus, to go bring salvation to the Ninevites of you and me to preach the good news, to bring salvation. What did he do? He comes down and preaches and gives us new life because Jesus himself was a perfect embodiment of God's mercy. See, God cast Jonah into the belly of the fish in his sin for three days and three nights, and only after that he begins to realize his sins. But Jesus, the greater Jonah, he willingly chose himself to be cast down into the deepest Sheol of your life, into the darkest despair of hell for three days and three nights, so that he may understand the despair you and I might go through in our lifetime. As we come to a close, friends, God's mercy is not like Jonah's. God's mercy is not like yours and mine, where it's so calculating and so cautious and so stingy. Our God's mercy is unrestrained. It's never-ending. And if God in his mercy sent his only son to go down and down and down to the deepest storm and Sheol of your life, you can trust him. You can trust his mercy to take you on your way to heaven to where he is at now. You see, Jesus on the cross and in the tomb has already gone through your tribulation, your distress, your danger, your uh, brokenness, your pain, and your tears that we will go through in our lifetime. And he came out the other side victorious in resurrection glory so that you and I can also make it through the other end, sharing in his resurrection glory, where there will be no such thing as sin or brokenness, no such thing as cancer or death, no such thing as trauma 
or abuse. No such thing as tears or broken and shattered relationships. And as John Flavel, the 17th century Puritan, has himself said, Jesus, our head, is already in heaven. And if the head be above water, the body cannot drown. Friends, if you are in Christ, if Christ is your head, no matter what you're facing, no matter what may come your way, know, know that you are so safe, so secure, because your head, Jesus, is above water in resurrection glory, you and I cannot drown. And if that is true, how can we stay silent about this God of mercy and keep this good news of mercy to ourselves? So I pray New Life Press as we celebrate Missions Month, as we stand in awe of God's mercy that is able to turn your despair into faith, that is able to turn your ending into your beginnings, that is able to turn your hopelessness into real and lasting hope. I pray that it would propel us to be the sent and sending church from here in Fulton and Orange County and beyond to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Our merciful Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this good news. That Lord, you have sent your only son to be the greater and better Jonah, to willingly choose to lay down his life for our sins, for our rebellion, but also, Lord, not just for our sins, but also for the effects of the brokenness of this world. So, Father, I pray for the members of this church and all the, all the people that have come to hear your word today, Lord, whatever they may be going through, whatever trauma in the past they have experienced, when whatever they might face in the future, I pray, Lord, that you would remind them of your mercy, and may they never lose the wonder of your mercy. May they always look to the cross where your mercy for undeserving people like us was perfectly displayed. So we thank you for the gift of your son once again. We pray all of this in Christ's name.